This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson. And this is The Enemies List. On today's edition of The Enemies List, I have two things for you that I think you're going to find really interesting. The first is a crossover from my Substack. It's an article that I wrote uh, on February 6th, earlier in the week, about how Vladimir Putin took over the GOP. It's relevant to our guest today, John Bolton, who is going to talk to us about where he sees the dangers ahead of us if Trump returns to power on the foreign policy front. He is a guy who was an eyewitness to history in the Trump administration, and I'm really honored that he came on the show today, and I'm even more grateful of how direct and clear and crisp his argument is about the risks Trump poses in the future. I know you're going to like that interview. That will come after this essay, and then I'll have a couple things to say about our entry on this week's enemies list, Comrade Tucker Carlson. How Vladimir Putin took over the GOP. The end of the Soviet Union should have been a global milestone of the expansion of liberty and freedom. I was privileged to be a part of that last generation of young cold warriors to witness its ignominious death as the wall fell and a liberated Eastern Europe emerged from the dead grip of communism. Like Chernobyl, one of the catalyzing events in its collapse, the Soviet model should have been sealed in a tomb, locked away, and surrounded by fences for eternity. Soviet communism was never about the communism part. It was about the exercise of power by an elite kleptocracy. All the window dressing in the world couldn't disguise the ugly autocracy and the oppressive mechanisms of its manifold evils. Its complete failure as an economic and social system was even more evident after the collapse. But the Soviet-era belief in using raw power, embodied by Vladimir Putin, survived. Today, He's in the process of winning a sweeping, historic victory against the main enemy, without rolling tanks through the Fulda Gap, indeed, without firing a shot at a single American or NATO soldier. For all that, Putin didn't create this victory. He was well on his way to a crushing defeat in the illegal invasion of Ukraine until he was saved by men with ambition and drive. The architects of this victory aren't in Moscow. They're not the products of the General Staff Academy the Russian intelligence services, or the elite Moscow University. The architects of the coming Russian victory in Europe and the enablers of a new axis of autocracy between Russia, China, and Iran aren't in Moscow, Beijing, or Tehran. They're in Washington, D.C., and every last one of them is a Republican. 
In the ongoing decline and fall of the Republican Party, we've reached a signature moment. MAGA's embrace of autocratic and authoritarian leaders and movements, its utter abandonment of America's role in the world, and its betrayal of the alliances and principles that define the post-war global order is shocking. But the trend lines now point to a full alliance with the darkest forces on the world stage by the Trump GOP. I know it's easy to blame Donald Trump, Comrade Carlson, and the Bannon tendency, and I most certainly do give Trump and his scruffy allies the goat share of blame for this. But the deeper rot in the GOP's hatred of our allies and embrace of our enemies also involves many people who know better, at least on paper. They've picked a side, and it's Putin. The smart guys for the meritocracy, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, Tucker Carlson, et al., have all leaped into the arms of a Russian autocrat hell-bent on realigning the entirety of Europe in his image. They engage in endless moral panics over immigrants, Muslims, the Chinese Communist Party, and laugh off Putin's unjustified, illegal, and brutal campaign of war crimes and the deliberate targeting of civilians. Very few things cause more obvious distress among Republican elected officials than to ask them a simple question. Who would you like to see as the victor in Ukraine? At least until recently, one could expect some kind of mealy weasel speak. In their moral and intellectual decline, where they cannot force themselves to say they would prefer to see the Ukrainian people triumph over Vladimir Putin's illegal invasion. They are not serious people. They are not moral people. They are the guilty men of our era, more morally culpable than Chamberlain, Halifax, and the rest of the pacifist magical thinkers in the days before World War II. The entire charade of elaborate maneuvers in Washington in the last few weeks over the border issue has resolved down to a single cause, the desire by a meaningful and growing fraction of the Republican Party to ensure Vladimir Putin's victory in Ukraine. Today, the majority of the Senate and all the House Republicans are eagerly paving the road for Russian tanks to enter Kyiv, slaughter the Ukrainians at scale, and watch gleefully as Putin reassembles the lost prize of the old Soviet empire. At the rate things are going, don't be shocked if MAGAs from the House GOP start proposing military aid to Russia. Trump is primarily to blame for this as part of his generally corrosive effect on a party once centered on national security. Still, more and more Republican elected officials are making it quite evident they're not on the side of NATO or any kind of American interests. I was baffled by it for a while, wondering if the fever would break. But these days, if you place your bets on the fever never breaking, and Republicans doing the worst possible thing for America and the world, you're always much better off. Republicans in Washington have embraced Trumpism, Putinism, and the rest of the slurry of autocratic tendencies across the globe, from Orban to MBS. Putin cannot believe his good fortune. He desperately wants Trump back in office. But in the meantime, owning the Republican Party is getting him more leverage than he ever imagined. America, Ukraine, Europe, and the world are about to pay a terrible price. Our guest today is Ambassador John Bolton. We are honored to have him on the Enemies List podcast today. We've got a tight 15 minutes with the ambassador, so I want to get right into it, sir. I want to ask you about the transformation of the Republican Party that you and I grew up in into something that has now become uh, pro-Putin and sort of pro-authoritarian in a lot of ways. What do you see as the future of that party as a part of America's foreign policy and diplomatic and military strength in the world. Well, I hope that party that you described doesn't have much of a future. And uh, I, I believe 
notwithstanding what the commentary says, I believe Trump is an aberrational figure in American politics. Uh, he doesn't have a philosophy himself. He doesn't think in policy terms. He thinks only about what benefits Donald Trump. And, and I therefore think when he finally leaves the political scene, he will leave no heir apparent. He will not leave any coherent basis on which to proceed. There'll be people who emulate his theatrical attributes, uh, of which there are a number. But I think a lot of people in Congress who sound like Trumpers are intimidated by him. It's not that they agree with him. They're intimidated. That's good news and bad news, but it's better that they don't agree with him. Uh, And I just think the rest of us have to keep up pushing for Reaganite policies. They were right in 1980. Obviously, we're a long way away from that, but the philosophy behind the policies is what should guide us in the future. And I think we can get back to that. Uh, it, It won't be easy given the duration of Trump's appeal, which which uh, has been surprising in American political terms. But but it doesn't mean things are changed forever. I think that's right. I think that that he is so bespoke. He's so uniquely, you know, a cultural presence that it's hard to imitate him in the future as a leader, which is good, especially because. You know, on, on, you know, I both come from the right side of the fence, but there was a great historical tradition in the U.S. from Truman forward that we took the Russians with a big grain of salt. We tried to make sure that we addressed this, that, that very pro Putin sort of the, you know, the pinnacle of it being Helsinki and now the sort of Republican flip on Ukraine. What do you see as the future right now of, of Ukraine in the course of this giant debate we're having in Washington over funding the additional uh, military aid they need to to keep up the fight against Putin. I'm very worried about Ukraine. I think it's in a perilous position. I think the Tucker Carlson interview with uh, Vladimir Putin uh, demonstrates Putin is now doing something I was afraid of uh, for for the past year. He's now basically saying he's prepared to negotiate. I think he needs a ceasefire to regroup. Uh, he will basically doubled Russian control over Ukrainian territory, although at a terrible human cost from Russia's point of view. But if Putin can buy time, uh, he'll be back at it. I think Biden will jump at the chance to negotiate uh, a ceasefire in Ukraine to take one major problem off the table in front of him. I'm very much afraid the Europeans would just like to turn the page on the whole thing. The, The looming possibility of a Trump presidency has to worry Zelensky and his government. So uh, with, with our inability to get uh, legislative approval of, of necessary assistance for Ukraine, Putin has moved into a prime position, and I think Trump will exacerbate it uh, with his comments. Uh, so it's, uh, it really requires people to speak up for the reasons why we aid Ukraine. This isn't charity for the Ukrainians. We're doing this because it's in our interest to do it. Uh, and I won't spell out all the arguments here, but, but this, this is the fundamental problem with explaining to the isolationists, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, that our way of life here at home depends on a strong position internationally. And while we show weakness in Ukraine, it's not just to the Russians, it's to the Chinese, it's to Iran, it's to North Korea, it's to our allies as well who worry about our staying power. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, I think that's definitely one of the things that, that our NATO allies have to be thinking about, too, is, you know, they saw a sort of a, a breath of fresh air. They, you know, when Donald Trump went into it, it was basically this transactional, like, pay me attitude towards NATO, which ignored 65 plus years of history before that of, yes, did, did all the European countries pay as much as we wanted? No, of course not. But was NATO an essential to the global security order? Absolutely. What do you think happens to NATO if you know we get Trump back in office? And my belief is he'll just cede Ukraine to Putin immediately. He'll just cut him off. What's your thought on how that security architecture looks uh, if, if we don't help Ukraine and Trump comes back? Well, I, I think Trump will almost certainly try to withdraw from NATO. He almost did it in 2018. Uh, he's not changed his view. Uh, his comments are a little bit opaque at the moment, but I think uh, I know what his, his intention would be. When Trump pressed NATO allies to spend more, it wasn't the same reason that many of us for, for many, many years have pressed him to spend more to make NATO stronger. It was to push uh, NATO into a position where he could uh, announce withdrawal. And I think I think that's still his motivation. I think Putin is just waiting for him to come back to do that. And I think withdrawal would be a catastrophic mistake for the United States, it would obviously have immediate negative implications uh, for Ukraine. But, uh, but I think that's what, what uh, Trump has said is he would get Zelensky and Putin in a room together and solve it in 24 hours, which of course is ridiculous. Uh, a meeting like that would fail. Uh, obviously, it's not Donald Trump's fault. It never is when failure uh, happens. It has to be somebody else. And I don't think he he would uh, blame his friend Vladimir Putin. So uh, that's just another reason that underlines why we need to get this pending aid to Ukraine so they can stave off uh, the, the kinds of pressure I'm afraid they're about to see. You know, uh, there's been a lot of talk, and you meant, sort of mentioned this, the people that are are motivated and encouraged by watching the potential of this. You know, this uh, Iran has become now a weapon supplier on the drone front to uh, Russia. Iran's behavior throughout the Middle East is now as as aggressively forward as I've seen it in decades. Are we looking at the emergence of a world order around a Russia-China-Iran axis at this point? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've written exactly that. I mean, I think the, the so-called post-Cold War era is over. Uh, and I think it ended last year with the various visits between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Uh, it is definitely a Sino-Russian axis, uh, different from the Cold War because China's the dominant partner, Russia's the junior partner. They do have their uh, satellites and outliers, North Korea, Iran, Syria, Belarus, maybe a couple of others. Uh, and, and I think they view, certainly in Beijing, which is the principal threat, the, they view the war in Ukraine, they view the turmoil induced by Iran in the Middle East uh, to be connected with their own interests. If, if I were a leader in Beijing today, I'd be saying to myself, the United States is in the middle of a presidential campaign. They've got a war in Ukraine to worry about, war in the Middle East. Where can we take advantage of the United States along our periphery? So we haven't heard the last from China, uh, that, that's for sure. I've been pondering that, like, in a world where China's economy is an order of magnitude more important than where it was in the prior iteration of the Sino-Soviet 
accord. Even with China's economy in a little bit weaker state than it has been lately, they've still got the juice to keep a lot of trouble brewing on the, on the Pacific front. And Iran has a seemingly limitless amount of, of low-cost trouble they can generate throughout the Middle East. That chaos that's driven by all that is what I think people miss about the economic and political ramifications of it around the world. Yeah. And, you know, look, China uh, is, faces a, a century-long reduction in its population. It will result in decline in its economy, decline in its military power. But those who say what that really means is while we've got long-term good prospects in the near term, which I'll call 20 years, uh, China knows this too. And this is the period of maximum threat uh, from China deploying those resources to solidify its position for what they too uh, have to see as a risk of decline. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I've, I'm very curious about as we go forward into, if there is a second Trump term, you know, the, the fundamental rule of government, you've served in government for many decades. You've been in, in, in the national security and diplomatic space since the 1980s. You understand it better than probably almost anybody out there, that personnel is policy. And at least in the first Trump administration, there were people like you and Jim Mattis and others who were from the grown-up world, I call it. What do you think is going to an administration will look like if there's a second Trump term? What do you think, especially the diplomatic and foreign policy space, will look like? I fear it's going to end up being the Cash Patel, Mike Flynn types that will re- return to Washington and people who are deeply unequipped, in my opinion, to to do those jobs. Look, the the one and only question on uh, most of the job interview sheets for for positions in the Trump administration is, will you do what I tell you to do uh, and and just say yes, uh, rather than give me your useless opinions? And I think there are a lot of people who are perfectly willing to do that. Uh, I'm worried about it, as you say, rightly in in the State Department. I'm, I'm worried perhaps even more at the Justice Department and the Defense Department. There will be some good people who just want to serve the the, the government uh, in lower non-cabinet positions. You know, I I don't want to tell them not to do it because our government does need good people to help run it. And maybe they can escape notice by Trump and actually get good things done. But in in the sensitive department, state, uh, defense, justice, uh, Trump's going to be all over them. And uh, they're going to have to know when to make the decision to protect their their reputation, their integrity, their sense of uh, honesty from from carrying out orders that, frankly, will risk being illegal almost from the time Trump is sworn in. I, yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and it's it's a pattern we've seen now uh, more explicitly that loyalty is the only criteria. And you know, I was when I was a young dumbass Schedule C in the first Bush administration. Uh, working in the Defense Department with Secretary Cheney, no one ever asked me, "Are you going to blindly follow orders?" You know, the 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 only oath you swore, whether you were a cabinet member or the lowest, you know, lowest special assistant, was, "Are you going to, you know, swear full faith to the allegiance to the Constitution?" And that seems like it, that's very much in the rear view if there's a second term, including things like they they're saying they don't want to go through the appointment process; they just want to do interims for everything, actings for everything which I think is tremendously dangerous for, for the credibility of those people. If they're dealing with foreign counterparts, you know, you're the acting sort of temporary guy. You're not confirmed. I think that's a really strange spot for them to be put in. Yeah, Trump has a very distorted notion of government. He thinks he's more powerful if everybody is acting and temporary and beholden to him. He simply doesn't understand how to uh, expand the scope of his authority. 
by having people that he trusts to, to follow his policies, to do the right thing, uh, and get more extensive control over the bureaucracy. He complains endlessly about a deep state, but doesn't do what it makes perfectly good sense to do to get control of the bureaucracy. Right, right. So, and, and a final thought, I know we've, we're coming up on our time with you here. As we go forward into the next, into this election year, what would you want American voters to be thinking about when, in the, when it comes to foreign and defense policy as, as, as they look at the campaign, the options of this campaign? Well, I wish we had candidates who would address the American people like adults, because I think they are adults. And I think if you say to them, the United States faces multiple threats around the world from other superpowers, from nuclear weapons to cyberspace, uh, right down to typical conventional threats as we see in Ukraine. Uh, We're going to have to do more to protect ourselves, to protect our way of life here at home. It's going to require more defense spending, go from 3% to maybe 5% like we spent in the Reagan administration. Uh, But we need to do this so that our children and grandchildren will live in a safe country in a safe world. I think if you make that case to the American people, they will rally behind it. Uh, but if nobody's making the case, particularly if Republicans stop making the case, the Democrats aren't going to make it. We're going to have isolationist dominant in both parties and the country will be in real trouble. There's no good outcome from isolationism. So, John Bolton, thank you so much, Ambassador, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time and your insight and uh, look forward to talking to you again someday soon. Glad to do it. Happy to come back. So, listen. Comrade Tucker Carlson, the Lord Ha Ha of our time, zipped over to Moscow this week because apparently the home office has decided that the work from home policy is no longer in in effect. Putin sat down with Tucker Carlson, and I have to say, he played Tucker like a fiddle. I mean, after 25 years in journalism, I have rarely seen a a guy who was a professional TV host like Tucker Carlson get owned, slapped around, collared and dragged around like a dog the way Putin did. This was an embarrassing moment for Tucker, a deeply embarrassing moment for anybody who for a second thinks that Vladimir Putin is an interlocutor you can deal with in an honest and clear way that he's going to say or do anything that isn't on his agenda and not yours. This wasn't journalism. This was humiliation. And you should have known better, Tucker. You should have known much better. You brought soft questions to a hard man, and he raked you over the coals. He embarrassed you. He shamed you. I mean, hang your head. You are on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.